we are continuing our series through our values. Um, so for those of you that are not aware, uh, we've got uh, values here at Pillar DC. and Our values are just things that uh, we believe are very important. They're kind of our non-negotiables. And um, so our banner up there, the Bible, risk-taking faith, bold evangelism, selfless service, intentional discipleship, and the Great Commission. Those are our values. Those are things that we we believe with conviction that we can't compromise on. We can't bend. We those are the, the that's the filter through which we make our decisions. We always want to keep those things at the forefront. Uh, and this morning we're going to be talking actually about two of our values. Uh, last week we talked about risk taking faith, and this morning we're going to talk about bold evangelism and the Great Commission. So we're going to do two birds, one stone today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So Philippians is uh, one of Paul's letters, one of Paul's epistles, it's in the New Testament. Uh, it's towards the end of your Bible, so if you want to turn there, I uh, hope that you have a Bible. If you don't, I would. Uh, uh, there may be some in the pews in front of you as well. Uh, so grab one, and I really hope that you'll follow along with me uh, there in the scriptures. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, and while you're turning there, uh, I want to give you some, some background to the book of Philippians. Um, so the apostle Paul wrote this letter. And he was writing from prison. He was in prison in Rome. And he was writing to the church in Philippi, a church that he had planted. You can actually read about that story in Acts chapter 16. It's an amazing story of how that happened. I'd encourage you to, to, to take a look at Acts chapter 16 later on. Um, and so the Philippians, what had happened was the Philippian church, uh, they were very close with Paul. They had a tight bond. And they had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to go help Paul in prison because See, back then in the first century, you didn't get three square meals a day and like an hour in the rec yard when you were in jail. They didn't provide food. If you wanted to eat, then people from the outside had to bring you food or you would just starve to death and die. And so the Philippian church, when they heard that Paul had been put in jail, they sent Epaphroditus with a gift um, to bring to Paul to help support him. And now Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, and he was carrying this letter that we have today, which is the book of Philippians. And... In this letter, there's a lot of things. Paul encourages the church. He uh, reminds them of the gospel. It's also partially a thank you letter for their gift. Um, and then in the particular passage we're looking at today, Paul was updating the Philippians on his current situation. And he was reassuring them that God was alive and well, that he was alive and well, and that, and that God was at work, even in the midst of his imprisonment. So we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 to 18, so I'm going to read this passage, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Here is what God's Word says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would give us soft uh, hearts this morning. Pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say, eyes to see what you want us to see in your word. Um, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you and that we would each allow your word to examine our lives and to examine our hearts. God, I pray this morning that, that you would help us to see that, God, you are sovereign over everything. I pray that you would help us to see your providence in the way that you are saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation and how you want to work through us as believers to do that. I pray that you would help us to see that there is no greater joy than seeing Christ proclaimed. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to see that it is so much better to store up treasure in heaven. It's so worth it to lay down um, the things of this world that are going to pass away so that we can store up treasure in heaven. I pray that each one of us would do that. And God, I plead with you this morning, Lord, for those who are in this room that are not born again, that today you would open their eyes. God, I can't convince anyone to trust in you. I can't convince anyone to treasure Jesus. God, there's a veil that lies over the eyes of unbelievers. God, there is a spiritual darkness that is settled over the city, that is settled over the world, that's settled over, that was at one time settled over me until you opened my eyes and was settled over every believer in this room until you graciously gave us spiritual sight. God, do that today in the life, on the hearts and lives of people. Please, God, I plead with you in Jesus' name. Demonstrate your power and your mercy and save sinners this morning. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my aim and really the main point of this sermon this morning is summed up like this. Here's kind of the sentence that we're going to work off of. God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel, and it's the advancement of the gospel that brings joy to God's people. So God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel, and it is the advancement of the gospel that brings joy to God's people. Now, I want to break that statement down into two parts because there's really two clauses in that statement, and we're going to walk through them. So those will be our two points. Point one, God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel. Part two, the advancement of the gospel brings joy to God's people. Uh, but before we do that, I want to define the providence of God, because I don't just want to throw a word like that in there and assume that we're all thinking the same thing when we hear it. What is the providence of God? Uh, the way that I would define the providence of God is, is like this. God directs, governs, and brings about everything that happens in the universe for his glory and the good of his people. That means that nothing at all happens by chance. It's all orchestrated by God, and it's not just orchestrated by God, it's all for a purpose. It's purposeful. God has an intention in everything that happens. I love how Charles Spurgeon um, put it. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling 
of an avalanche. So God is completely sovereign and orchestrates and directs everything that happens in the universe, and it's all for a purpose, namely for his glory and for the good of his people. Now, while the word providence is not in this passage that we read, its presence is unmistakable. Uh, look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, we should pause and ask, well, what happened to him? What, what has happened to Paul? Well, he was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote this letter. Uh, the way that Paul had ended up in prison in Rome is that he had been taken into custody in Jerusalem. So Paul had been gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem because there was a famine there. And he had gone to Jerusalem to take a gift to the church there, to the believers, to help them. And also to continue to preach the gospel. And while there, uh, Paul had been a wanted man in Jerusalem. There were people that wanted to kill him for preaching the gospel. And a, uh, they ended up finding Paul. And they, all, they tried to kill him. Uh, but he ended up in jail uh, under the Roman authorities. Uh, he was questioned, and eventually he ended up in Rome after he appealed to Caesar. He was brought to Rome in chains, facing unjust charges from his opponents. But here's the thing, while the intention of Paul's persecutors was to silence the gospel message, what Paul is saying here in verse 12 is that their actions actually had the opposite effect. The, uh, the, the CSB version uh, of Philippians 1.12, the Christian Standard Bible version says, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. In other words, my imprisonment, which was supposed to silence the gospel, has actually made it advance. So they intended to shut Paul up and stop the advance of the gospel, but instead the gospel spread. It was like, it was like a, a fan on the flames of the fire. There's, there's two results in particular that Paul points out of his imprisonment. He specifies how his imprisonment has advanced the gospel. In verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the, the imperial guard is uh, the praetorian guard. It's literally, the, in Greek, it's the praetorian guard. It was the special unit charged with guarding Caesar and his household. It was an elite military unit. And because God brought Paul to this Roman prison, the gospel began to spread through this elite military unit and through the entire prison. And they listened as this man who had been beaten badly and who was thrown in jail joyfully proclaimed a crucified and risen Savior and word began to spread quickly. Soldiers began to come to Christ. Prisoners began to come to Christ, and they began to share with other soldiers. And prisoners began to share with other prisoners. No matter how hard opponents of the gospel tried to stamp it out, it just kept spreading. God turned the schemes of Satan on its head. But that's not the only positive result that happened from Paul's imprisonment. Look at verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers, a.k.a. the Christians in Rome having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Wait a second. Should that be the opposite? Should, if the greatest church planter in the history of the world gets thrown into prison and beaten, shouldn't that intimidate the church and cause them to shut up? But that's not what happened. 
they became more bold. Instead, their fear was removed and their confidence in God soared. They proclaimed the gospel more loudly and more frequently. It's so important to see here that it was not the removal of the threat, but God's power over the threat that removed the fear of the believers. As they saw the power of God on display despite the persecution, as they saw the gospel spreading, and as they saw Paul's example of his continuous joy in Christ, even in suffering, it just emboldened them even more to not be afraid of persecution, to not be afraid of being thrown into prison. And what I really don't want you guys to miss this morning is that all of these things that are happening were not happenstance. These are not, they were not random. God was not reacting. He didn't say, oh no, they threw my, my best church planter in jail. What am I going to do? I've got to figure out a plan B. That's, that's not what was happening here. God ordained all of this, including Paul being beaten and thrown into jail. Do we have a category in our minds for that, though? God providentially orchestrated this series of events to bring Paul to Rome, to put him into prison so that Paul could proclaim the gospel to the Praetorian Guard and to the prisoners. You can't help but think of Joseph's words in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Remember what Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt, but God uh, ultimately was with Joseph and ended up putting him second in command. There was a famine in the land. Joseph rose to second in command, and through Joseph, God preserved Egypt. And then when Joseph's brothers came back years and years later, and they realized that Joseph was their brother and he was second in command and they were afraid, Joseph said, don't be afraid. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph saw God's providential hand even in the evil act, even in the sinful act of his brother selling him into slavery. He understood that God had a purpose in it. And that's what we see here in Philippians chapter 1. What Paul's persecutors meant for evil, God meant for good. God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel. The gospel cannot be stopped. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, I'm suffering for the gospel, bound with chains like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. You can't chain the word of God. You can chain Christians. You can put Christians in jail, but you can't stop the spread of the gospel. No matter what, we're seeing it happen in China right now. We're seeing it happen in North Korea right now. It's illegal to be a, a Christian in North Korea, and yet it's estimated that there's some 400,000 believers in growing in that country. Tens of thousands of whom are right now in hard labor camps for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they are not turning away from Christ because they have a better hope. So what does all this mean for our lives? What does this mean for our lives that God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel? Well, I think one thing it means is that we need to understand that God moves us from place to place in our lives providentially for the purpose of making Jesus known. God, he brought Paul to Rome in an unusual way. It wasn't Paul's plan. Like Paul didn't sit back and go, hmm, you know what? I think I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get attacked by a mob falsely accused, almost killed, then I'm going to get arrested, then I'll appeal to Caesar, and then I'll get led in Rome in chains, and that's how I'm going to reach the Praetorian Guard. Paul didn't do that. He didn't know any of this was coming. 
Paul just said, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter where he leads me, and I'm going to continue proclaiming the gospel wherever I go, because that's my purpose as a disciple. And similarly, God providentially orchestrates all of the events in your life, all of them. And if you're a Christian, he brings you to specific places primarily so that you can make Jesus known. That's the primary reason he has you wherever you are. This is where the vision of the Praetorian Project comes from. Now, Pillar DC is a part of a network of churches called the Praetorian Project. Uh, the Praetorian Project is a family of multiplying churches and military communities around the world. And the name for the Praetorian Project actually comes from this passage. So it was the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's elite unit, that saw revival in a Roman prison as Paul shared the gospel with them. So God providentially brought Paul to Rome, and then God used the Roman military to spread the gospel even further throughout the city. And that, that's truly our vision for the Praetorian Project. We believe that Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen are moved from place to place by God's providence. Yes, the, the, the government ultimately, your commanders hand you orders, but behind those orders is a providential God who orchestrates all things according to the counsel of his wisdom. And our desire is to disciple military members and their family so that as God moves you from place to place, you can make Jesus known wherever he leads you in the world, during and after your time in the military. And we're not just a military church. In fact, the majority of our members are not in the military. But we do have a specific call to reach the, the military along with the city of Washington, D.C. So, Lord willing, more Praetorian Project churches will be planted near military communities around the world in the coming years. That's our desire. And if you're in the military, if you're a, if you're a part of a military family, I want to challenge you to start looking at your current duty station, where you're at right now, and your next duty station as a mission field. That's why God has you here. And that's why he's going to bring you wherever he brings you next. He doesn't place us, put it in places by accident. Think about, like, why can't God do at Marine Barracks, Washington, at 8th and I, what we see him do in Philippians chapter 1? Can I ask you all something? Has God changed? Is he the same God today as he was in, in Philippi in the first century? He was, which means he can do the exact same thing in the Marine Barracks, Washington, as he did in the Praetorian Guard. He can do the same thing at JBAT. He can do the th same thing at Andrews Air Force Base. He can do the same thing in your neighborhood, wherever he calls us to go. I'm certain that God will do it when his people are faithful to proclaim the gospel. But do we believe? Jesus said, let it be done to you according to your faith. Do we really believe that the gospel is the power of God and salvation? Do we really believe that God can do this today? I do. And I'm calling us as a church to believe the same thing. And if you're not in the military, non-military families, I want to issue the same challenge to you. Do you realize that God has a purpose for you being in D.C. right now? Some of you are struggling to find meaning in your life. You're discontent here. Oftentimes we look to a change of scenery to help scratch that itch. But what if the purpose for you being here is right under your nose? 
What if it's in that Bible sitting on your lap right now? That doesn't mean that we're all called to stay. We're not. But I'll, but I'll ask another question. As you think about where you're going to go next, is the most important factor in your decision-making, where can I make Jesus known best? Is that the most important factor? It's easy to slip into worldly thinking because we're surrounded by the world. We're surrounded by worldliness, by people who are so short-sighted. They don't have eternity in picture. We can't think like that. We're, living, we're, we're looking forward to a better future. We're looking forward to eternity with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So we can't, our primary thinking can't be where are the best schools and where are the safest neighborhoods and where's the best restaurant scene and where's the most prestigious universities. None of those things are bad in themselves, but they can't drive our decision making as Christians. Our primary purpose is to make Jesus known wherever God calls us to. Maybe it is in a place with prestigious universities. That's great because they need the gospel too. But don't let that d drive your decision making. I want to challenge you to reorient your thinking around the gospel and what really matters and around what will last for eternity. And God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel. Another implication for all of this is that God calls us to work through persecution for the purpose of making Jesus known. He moves us from place to place for the purpose of making Jesus known, and he calls us to walk through persecution for the purpose of making Jesus known. Wherever and whenever we proclaim the gospel, there will be opposition. But the persecution that believers face isn't meaningless. It's not just for the sake of suffering. God, as we've seen in Philippians 1, providentially turns it on its head for the advancement of the gospel. The big question is, are we willing to bear reproach with Jesus? The persecution takes different forms. It looks a lot different here in the West than it does in other parts of the world. But right now in China, any Christian messaging is censored online. Churches are being burned to the ground. Pastors are disappearing or are being placed into hard labor camps. In Nigeria... Over 12,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been murdered by Boko Haram in the past five years. They raid uh, villages with machetes and they hack men, women, and children to death on the spot just for being Christ followers. To be honest, we know very little of what it means to suffer persecution for the gospel. And some of that has to do with the fact that we live in a free society. But some of it also has to do with the reality that it doesn't take much to silence Christians in America. Tim Kesey is an author and a, a missionary who works amongst uh, the most unreached peoples in closed countries around the world. And he made a point in a recent article in Desiring God that, that persecution always starts with intimidation and threats and shunning. That's, that's how it starts. And if that doesn't silence believers, then things get ratcheted up from there. But the problem with many believers is that intimidation is more than enough to keep us quiet. I'm ashamed to say that that's been true of me far too often. If the enemy can see, keep us from sharing the gospel, then we're no threat to him. If this church is not filled with church members who are proclaiming the gospel all across the city, then Satan doesn't care about us. We're not a threat. Churches that don't preach the gospel don't matter. 
to the kingdom of darkness. It's, it's inconsequential. He's already like, I got you. Here's the irony, is that the things that we often avoid, like prison, persecution, are the very things that God will often use in his providence to bring about the greatest gains for the advancement of the gospel. That's what we see in this passage. It was Paul's imprisonment that caused the gospel to spread farther and faster, and we avoid those things. But why is it that intimidation is enough to silence us? Have you thought about that? Like, why is that? Especially when we live in such a safe place, right? I mean, we live in one of the safest places to be a Christian in the world. Probably the safest place in the place, if we're being honest. Well, the, I think the answer to that question is found in our desires. It's the control center of our hearts. Look, at, look again at verses 15 to 18. Paul says, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So think about this. Paul's plans had been upended. He had been beaten and thrown into prison just for sharing the good news about Jesus. And on top of that, there were even Christians in Rome trying to undermine his ministry, he says here. But what was the end result result for Paul? It was joy. Why? All those things going wrong. And the end result is joy. The reason is that he says, he tells us why he's rejoicing. He rejoiced in Christ being proclaimed. Christ was the source of his joy. And that's the second part of our original statement. We said that God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel, and it's the advancement of the gospel that brings joy to God's people. So Paul didn't grumble and complain when things started going poorly. He didn't, he didn't go, well, I better start just preaching the gospel with my actions and not my words. And lay low. He kept on preaching Christ. He lived for one purpose, which was to make Jesus known. And the reason he did that is because he treasured Jesus over everything else. That's what it means to be a Christian. To love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. If you don't do that, you're not a Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian, to love God, to to esteem Him as the greatest being in all the universe because that's what He is. Anything less, anything we put in His place is idolatry. Verse 18 is such a powerful verse. I want you to really think about what Paul is saying here. When he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If Christ being proclaimed is our greatest joy, then nothing will stop us from proclaiming Christ. Not even persecution. Because if what what I want more than anything is for Christ to be proclaimed, I'll be willing to walk through hardship to see my greatest joy become reality. It's worth it. Because I just want Christ to be proclaimed. So what that means is that if persecution silences us from proclaiming the gospel, it means that there is something that we treasure more than Christ. That's just the bottom line. It could be our safety, our comfort, our job, 
our bank account, our ego, whatever it is, if we're allowing intimidation or threats or the possibility of rejection to keep us from making Christ known, then making Christ known is not currently our greatest joy. Something else is. Does that make sense? I know this is hard, but I kind of want the knife of God's word to stick in a little bit because we need it. We need to be awake. We need to be snapped out of the fog of worldliness that we live in. What I hope you guys will see this morning is that we don't need to cling to these things. Because Jesus provides all that we so desperately try to cling to in the kingdom of God. We don't need to save up treasure for ourselves on earth. Maybe you're wondering, well, why should I rejoice at Christ being proclaimed more than anything else? What if I don't see that as the best thing ever? Um, Let me make the case for why you should. First of all, we should want Christ to be made known because the gospel is true. Because it's good news. And Christ crucified and risen is the only way for sinners to be saved. So if we love people, then we will want Christ to be proclaimed. It will give us joy whenever Christ is proclaimed more because that means that people can be saved. But secondly, as the gospel is proclaimed, we move ever closer to the return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. Whatever it is, we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. But when the full number of God's elect has come into the kingdom, the sky is going to crack, the trumpet is going to blow, and Jesus is going to come back for his saints, and he's going to make all things new. And all those things your heart longs for, all those things you desire, are going to be yours infinitely forever. Jesus is going to be the the good and the righteous king, the leader that we all long for. Don't tell me y'all aren't longing for a good and a righteous king, especially with the leadership that we've got over the past several decades around here in this country. We long for a righteous king who will do good. The kingdom of God will bring about the peace that we long for so so badly. It's it's partially realized right now in the church as we're called to, to love our enemies. We're called to serve one another. We're called to consider others more important than ourselves. And we do it imperfectly because we're sinners, but it's a foretaste of the perfect peace that will be present in the kingdom of God. There will be perfect peace under Jesus' reign. In the kingdom of God, complete healing will be realized, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We will have restored, resurrected bodies that will never wear out. There will be no more memory of pain, or of past heartache. All that was wrong will be made right and we'll never have to worry about death again. In the kingdom of God, the safety that we desire will be perfect. There will be no more fear of death because death will be swallowed up forever. And in the kingdom of God, our joy and our pleasure will be full because we'll be in God's presence. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you guys see what I'm trying to help you see here? Let me, here's how I summarize it. Everything that we are afraid to lose, if we truly die to ourselves to make Jesus known, 
all that we're hesitant to lay on the altar, Jesus promises to give us in abundance in the kingdom of God. So you don't have to cling to it. You don't have to try to keep yourself safe or to hold on to your comfort. All that's coming in the kingdom of God. And the more Christ is proclaimed, the closer we get to the consummation of the kingdom, the closer we get to Jesus' return. This is why we can lose our lives for Jesus' sake now. This is what Jesus means when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. This is, if we're honest, this is difficult for Christians in the West and in America to do because we have great wealth. This morning in our Bible reading plan, if you've been following along, you read the story in Luke 18 of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, I'm a pretty good person, Jesus. I've kept the commandments. Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell everything that you own, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he went away sad because he was unwilling to lay down his treasure to follow Jesus. And church, make no mistake, following Jesus means proclaiming him. Jesus summed it up what discipleship is in Matthew 4, 19 to 20. He said, follow me, and I'll teach you to become fishers of men. Every disciple is called to be a fisher of men. If we're unwilling to lay down our comfort, if we're unwilling to lay down our safety, whatever it is, then we're playing the part of the rich young ruler. We're turning away sad from Jesus' call to be a disciple because we're very rich, because we have a good, comfortable American dream and American life, and we're not willing to give it up. I'm calling us as a church to lay it down today. Lay it down this morning. Don't grasp hold of it anymore. Give your lives for the sake of the gospel, whether that means going to plant a church in D.C., whether that means going to an unreached people group, whether that means being a, uh, a nurse and proclaiming Christ in your workplace, or whether that means being a stay-at-home mom and making it your commitment to disciple your children and raise them up to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, or whether that means being an engineer and doing engineering to the glory of God while you take every opportunity to make Christ known to your lost co-workers. Whatever it is, do it all unto the glory of God. Lay down your treasure on earth. You know, it's actually through hardships that God prepares us for eternity. That's one of the reasons that we can, we can embrace the cross. We can take it up with confidence and deny ourselves because God prepares us through eternity, for eternity, through these hardships. It's the suffering that whips up an appetite in our souls for Christ's return. It's the suffering that shakes us out of the fog of this worldliness that we're stuck in and this addiction to, to things that are going to pass away. I was, I was reading some lyrics uh, earlier because we're... Uh, I was just having some conversations with some friends, and I was reading some lyrics to some African-American spirituals and and older gospel songs uh, this week. And one of the things that struck me was that how frequently they spoke of heaven. And they spoke of the age to come, like more than half of the songs, like easily. There there was this constant focus on, on eternity, on the age to come, on the glory that awaits. And I thought about, well, well, why is that? And the answer really is pretty simple when you think about it. 
you don't, you don't need to convince slaves that what Christ offers is way better than what we've got here. It's not a hard convincing. Oh, how they long for the new heavens and the new earth, where their shackles were broken and where Jesus is their gentle master. They knew this world wasn't their home. They didn't have to have somebody tell us that. Church, we need to be snapped out of realizing this world is not our home. We need to wake up. It's difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. I'm believing that God is going to snap Christians out of it in this room this morning. I'm pleading with him that you'll do it. I want you to fix your eyes on eternity. Don't live for the things of this world. We can't continue the status quo. We're surrounded by millions of people who call themselves Christians who are lost because they're trusting in their own works for salvation. I meet them all the time when we go share the gospel. Everybody we talk to, how are you going to get to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. They're damned. Condemnation hangs over them. If they, go into, if they pass into eternity now, they'll spend eternity in hell. We've got to tell them we can't be quiet. We must lay down our lives. Oh, I pray that this is a day where our church is changed forever. As Doug prayed this morning, one of our elders, I pray that this is a day where we look back on and we say, this was the day that God called people out of their slumber, that missionaries entered the field, that people raised their hands and said, I'll go to the hard places. I'll go to the unreached peoples. I'll go to my neighbors. Oh, I pray God, please do it. I want to close by just offering a couple of specific words of exhortation, of application. First, believers, I want you to see from this passage that, that, that you can rejoice in your certain future. The gospel is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It can't be changed. In fact, like we saw all that opponents of the gospel do to try to stop it just makes it spread faster. Jesus wins every time. He's on the throne. His enemies are beneath his feet. It's game over for Satan. He's on a leash. Jesus wins. We're on the victorious side. We don't need to be defeated. We don't need to hang back in fear. Jesus has the victory. He's alive. He's with us always to the end of the age. Church, let's get excited about that. Amen? It's good news. And if you rejoice in Christ being proclaimed, that means your joy is certain. There's no way that what, you're, what you hope to see happen won't come to pass. It's going to come to pass. Not even, and, and here's the thing, not even death can separate you from your greatest joy because like Paul says a couple of verses later, to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. I love how, I mean, like that means if, if, if they kill us, they're just speeding us ahead to our reward. I love how John Piper put it one time, it always makes me laugh in, in a sermon. He, he was talking about, you know, if we're killed, you know, if, if somebody stood before him with a gun to his head and said, I'm going to blow your head off if you don't stop proclaiming Christ. He said, make my day, martyr maker. <laughs> That's how he put it. Rejoice in your certain future and then share the gospel with confidence because it's unstoppable. You don't need to apologize for the gospel or, or worry that a certain part of it might scare someone off. The gospel is, is powerful. It's God's living word. 
We just have to sow the seed and, and God gives the growth. You know, ironically, whenever we try to doctor up the gospel message by softening the blow or leaving out the part about sin or, or judgment or hell, we actually weaken it. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul said, if I try to doctor up the gospel and make it you know, palatable and change it up, it actually empties it of its power. God's word is plenty powerful on its own, guys. You don't have to try to doctor it up. You don't have to change it. Not everybody's going to receive it. It doesn't mean you did something wrong if you get a negative reaction. Paul got beaten and thrown into prison. You think he did something, you think he did a bad job explaining the gospel? No, he did a great job explaining the gospel. That's why people were so angry at him, because he was very clear. <laughs> but that's also why lots of people got saved. I mean, we're going to get more harsh reactions one way or the other if we start going out there and proclaiming the full counsel of God. It's going to happen. But that's better to me than indifference. Now, people can't be saved if we don't share the whole gospel. I want to be clear that, that sharing the gospel, when we say making Jesus known, that's more than just your coworkers knowing you're, you're a believer. That's more than just being a light by not taking part in sin. Those are good things. I, I hope that you don't take part in sin. I hope that you stand out. I hope that your coworkers know that you're a Christian. But let's not confuse that with sharing the gospel. People can't be saved by watching your life. People can't be saved by knowing that you go to Bible study on Tuesdays. They need to hear the gospel. If I were to give you all a blank piece of paper right now and say, Okay, I'm going to give you five minutes, and I want you to write down your answer to the question, what is the gospel? Could you write it down? I, I want you to, if, if the answer is like no right now, then I really want you to make a commitment to do all that you can to be able to confidently answer that question, which means, first of all, if you're in a discipleship relationship, get with your disciple maker and go, I really want you to show me how to share the gospel how to present it in an easy form. If you're not in a discipleship relationship, come and talk to me, Pastor Thomas, Pastor Doug, Pastor Chad, one of us, and we will help you get into one this morning. Don't put that off. We want to equip every single member to make disciples of Jesus, to share the gospel here, and non-members. Even if you're not a member yet, we want to equip you too. Since there seems to be a lot of confusion as to what the gospel is, I want to close by clarifying the essentials, okay? So, real quick, just so that we're clear, here's what the gospel is. These are the essential components of the gospel. These are the things that people need to hear to be saved. First of all, you have broken God's law, a.k.a. sinned, and you stand condemned. That's the biggest problem for every single person on this planet. This must be communicated. The cross of Christ makes no sense if we have any prayer of being good enough on our own. People must understand that they're sinners in need of a Savior. As I said earlier, there are millions of people who affiliate with Christianity who think that they will go to heaven because they're a pretty good person or because they go to church. Guys, they're heading for an eternity in hell. We have to push past the uncomfortableness and tell them the gospel and tell them that they can't trust in their own works. We can't just, when you're in a gospel conversation with somebody and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, don't just take their word for it. Ask them, what's their trust in? What are you hoping in? How will you get to heaven? Upon whose righteousness are you trusting, your own or Christ's? Make sure that people know we need to do that. 
because we love them for their sake. So you've broken God's law and stand condemned. Secondly, Jesus, the Son of God, <clears throat> came to die on the cross to pay our sin debt. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Our debt was insurmountable, and on the cross, Jesus paid all of our sin debt in our place. Third, three days later, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. We seem to like admit this part of the gospel oftentimes, I've noticed, when I ask people what the, <clears throat> excuse me, I need some water. Too much, too much shouting. I'm preaching my heart out this morning because I'm, I'm, if I could put in me, in you, that's what I want to do. So, you've broken God's law, stand condemned. Jesus, the Son of God, came to die on the cross to pay our sin debt. Jesus rose bodily from the dead three days later and appeared to many. Guys, we don't have good news if Christ has not been raised. We're of all people most to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection proved that he's God. It proved that his word is true, and it proved that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for our sins. So don't be ashamed of the resurrection. We get so twisted up in knots, I think, which are the gospel, because we feel like we gotta we gotta get be an expert in apologetics and try to convince somebody that the that the resurrection is true. It's a miracle. Just proclaim the gospel to people, and the power of God will save them. You don't have to try to like scientifically prove the gospel. Just proclaim it. Tell people, you must repent and believe or you are damned. It's in Christ alone that you're saved. Who says? The word of God says. That's who says. That's the authority on which we stand. That's okay to do that. You don't have to be a perfect apologetics expert. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Judgment day is coming when everyone's going to stand before God. People need to understand that they will stand before God and give an account. Either they will pay the price for their sin, or Jesus will pay the price for their sin. They need to understand that. And then they need, we need to clearly explain that you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone to receive forgiveness and eternal life. And we must call people to repent. Ask them to do it right there. Say, I'm calling you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus now to be saved. And then finally, we need, to, we need to part with a warning that those who reject Christ will go to eternal torment in hell, while those who trust in Jesus will be raised from the dead and live forever in eternal joy in the kingdom of God. No one talked about hell more than Jesus in the scriptures. And nobody ever questions whether or not Jesus loves sinners. So this whole notion that it's unloving to talk about hell is hogwash. We, it, it's loving to warn somebody that they're about to walk off of a cliff to their own destruction. That's loving. You warn them, right? And that's what's happening right now with lost people all over the place is they're walking towards their own eternal damnation. We need to warn them. And we need to tell them about the love of God and how he sent his one and only son to die in their place so that they don't have to walk off that cliff and be damned. They can be saved forever. Let's not be ashamed of this gospel, church. There is nothing to be ashamed of because the gospel will not disappoint. I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't ask you sitting here, do you believe it? Do you believe this gospel? Have you come under the conviction of your sin? Do you understand your total inability to justify yourself before God? If you have not, begin trusting Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sin. 
Don't sell your soul to gain the world. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. I don't care if you've been coming to church your whole life. I don't care if you're a member of this church. If you are not sure, make sure today. Don't put it off. Don't let your pride get in the way. What are they going to think? I'm a member of the church, and if I don't even know if I'm saved, what are they going to think? Who cares? We just want you to be saved. Come and talk to us. Please don't let something silly like that keep you out of the kingdom of God. Come and talk to us. Make sure today by repenting of your sin, placing your faith in Christ. Don't put this off. And don't put off telling others and pleading with them. This is what we're called to do, Pillar BC. Let's lay down our lives to make Jesus known in this city and around the world. If you know that God is calling you to take a step in your life in that way this morning, I want to challenge you to not just keep it to yourself, but I want, you to, I want to challenge you to come and tell us. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to send into the conviction of sin this morning, and you're going to go, I know that God's calling me to do this. And you're going to walk out of this place, and you're not going to talk to anybody, and all of a sudden the cares and the worries of the world are going to kind of come flooding back in, and before you know it, you're going to forget what God's told you this morning, and you're going to go on about your status quo. What I'm telling you is come this morning, talk to me, talk to Thomas, talk to Doug, talk to Chad, talk to your disciple maker, whoever you need to talk to, and say, I know God is calling me to step out in faith and to begin making disciples and to begin proclaiming Christ. I want to start, I want to do something about it starting today. Do that. We're going to have prayer counselors. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up um, now. We're going to have a couple of prayer counselors in the back, and I'll also be up here at the front. If you want to come and pray with us, if you're not sure, if you're a Christian, if you're not sure where you're going, where you're going when you die, you can go back there and talk to somebody or come up here and talk to me, and we will pray with you. If you want to, if you feel like God's calling you to commit to start making disciples and proclaiming Christ, make a change, then come and talk to us, okay? Um, don't put it off. God providentially ensures the advancement of the gospel, and it's the advancement of the gospel that brings joy to God's people. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I, I am just thankful that you, by your grace and your mercy, have saved us. I'm thankful that you brought every person here in this room, Lord. I don't, I don't know the hearts of everybody here, but I do know this, that you are gracious enough to bring them here so that they could hear the gospel proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And this morning, they've got the opportunity to turn from their sin and trust in you. Lord, what a mercy. There are many, many people who still have not heard the gospel all around the world. There are many people all around us who are sleeping in right now in houses all around us that haven't heard the gospel yet. Lord, we pray that the gospel would ring forth from here. We pray that it would, that it would spread like wildfire through James Creek and through uh, Marine Barracks, Washington, and through JBAB, and through our neighborhoods where we live. God, wherever we may be, we pray, God, that, that we would see multiple, multitudes of people turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Lord, give us faith. God, I pray that you'd help us to die to ourselves, to, to lay down the riches of this world, to lay down the American dream, to make you known. God, I pray that you would raise up missionaries and church planters from this congregation and that they would not be able to shake the call on your life that you have placed on their life to go and to reach the unreached with the gospel. God, I pray that you do it for your name's sake, for your glory, oh God. Use Pillar DC as an instrument. Use us as an instrument. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.